message and a good message for all of us. Leadership is one of those topics that just is always popular. You know, people are always wanting to learn about how to be a great leader or whether you're in, on Wall Street or Main Street, whether you're in Hollywood or in Washington, D.C., whether you're in a, a boardroom or a classroom or even a pulpit, people want to know how to lead, how to win friends and influence people, how to help their organization or their club or their church or their business to thrive and to grow and be successful. And so I did a little bit of looking up on this. Did you know there are over 15,000 books on leadership in circulation right now? That's a lot of books on leadership. Add to that the countless websites and podcasts and blogs and articles and all the conferences and the seminars on leadership. So why then does it seem like there's such a vacuum of good leaders today? If we're talking about leadership so much and studying leadership so much, why does it seem like all of our institutions and schools and corporations and churches and governments are more divided and more declining and more drifting than ever today? I think it's because the worldly approach to leadership fails It doesn't work. It doesn't do anything to address the heart problem of sin and selfishness in people. We need a different approach to leadership. We need Jesus' approach to leadership, which is servant leadership. There's a story I read that happened many years ago. Uh, A man on horseback came riding up to a group of soldiers, and they were in the road trying to move this big tree out of the way that had fallen across the road and there was a a corporal standing nearby who kept giving these lordly commands to heave, heave, but they just couldn't get the tree to quite move off the road. So the man on horseback said, why don't you help them? And the very important corporal said, me? Why, sir, I'm a corporal. So dismounting the stranger took his place amidst the men, and he said, All right, boys, all together now, heave! And they pushed, and they pushed, and they moved the tree off the path. And as the stranger mounted his horse, he looked at the corporal and said, Next time there's a tree in the road that needs to be moved, corporal, send for the commander-in-chief, because the man on the horseback was George Washington. Now, I don't know how true that story is. That's probably about as true as, you know, he can't tell a lie after cutting down his dad's cherry tree, right? But it illustrates a good point for us about leadership and about Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't just content himself with sitting up on his heavenly throne, shouting down orders at us to, to fix ourselves or to fix this world we've made such a mess of. No, Jesus took off his royal robe. He set aside his crown. He stooped down to become one of us, a human being and a humble servant. He came down to do what we couldn't do on our own, and that is to move the roadblock of sin from the path so that we can have access to God. But in so doing, Jesus also set an example for us. He showed us the skilled art of servant leadership, what it means to truly serve other people in a way, as Kelly said, that makes such a difference in their lives, that shows them that God loves them. And so in this passage today, Jesus unveils this masterpiece 
of servant leadership for us all to see. And he teaches us how we can master the art of being servant leaders. So look with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will arise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. Kind of, you know, somebody says, Hey, can you promise me something? And you're like, Well, that depends on what you want me to promise you, right? They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. And Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right or my left is not for mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you shall be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The first essential element of being a servant leader, Jesus shows us right here at the very beginning, is that we must lead others in courageous obedience. Courageous obedience. When we look at verse 32, this was not an unusual scene. Jesus up front leading the group of his disciples with a, a fuller crowd of people following behind. But there's something different this time. Jesus isn't just walking in front of a procession. He's walking ahead and alone on the road to Jerusalem to the crisis of the cross. And maybe there's just an extra boldness in his step. Maybe there's some kind of determination in his shoulders. Maybe there's a resoluteness in his demeanor that particularly captures their attention. Isaiah prophesies the Messiah as saying, Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Jesus has his face set like flint toward Jerusalem, and nothing is going to turn him aside. And notice how this makes the people with Jesus feel. It says that they were astonished and afraid. Now, the twelve were astonished, and I think that's understandable. Consider all they had experienced just in the last few chapters that we've looked at, right? I mean, Jesus feeds thousands. He casts out demons. Uh, there's the, 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 the amazing uh, Mount of Transfiguration. There's Peter's confession, and then Jesus' later rebuke of Peter. There's Jesus' radical teachings and His going head-to-head with the religious leaders. Jesus has been turning their world 
upside down. They're astonished. But the rest that were following Jesus weren't just astonished, they were afraid. Now, what were they afraid of? Well, unlike the twelve, who twice before Jesus has brought in and He's revealed to them that He's going to have to suffer all of these things. He's been telling the plan piece by piece to the twelve, but the rest of the crowd, the rest of the followers, they've not been privy to that inside scoop. But they sense that something has changed. As they're going up to Jerusalem, and twice it says they are going up to Jerusalem. This tells us that they are already there in the, in the Judean uh, central hills, and, and maybe they're even walking up towards Jerusalem, and, and they can see the temple in the distance. They're going up to Jerusalem, and the people are afraid. Maybe they've heard rumors that the Pharisees are plotting to arrest Jesus or to somehow discredit Jesus. Maybe the growing tension between Jesus and the authorities has got them nervous. Either way, the people maybe feel like Jesus is kind of leading them into the lion's den. Why are you going to Jerusalem? What a dangerous place for us to be right now. And notice how Jesus responded to their astonishment and fear. He illustrates that we must lead with resolute courage and faithful obedience. Remember, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem out of obedience to the Father. As Paul tells us in Philippians 2, that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. It takes courageous faith to obey God. Especially when we don't quite understand what God is asking us to do. We don't really know what the results or the consequences are going to be, even in those times that we really don't even know enough to count the cost. It takes courageous faith to obey God, and it takes more courageous faith to lead others to obey God. So here's Jesus, out in front of this fearful crowd, determined to obey the Father's will no matter the cost. Jesus knows what lies ahead. And He knows that this course of action is going to demand much from His followers. This is going to be a difficult and costly week for them too. David McKenna challenges us with this in his commentary on Mark. He says, If we want the courage to walk with Jesus on the way to the cross, we too must become obsessed with the single-mindedness of doing the will of God. Joshua in the Old Testament is a great example of this for us. God called him to lead Israel, to cross the Jordan into this land and and to possess this land God had promised them. But this was a land with big fortified cities and massive armies and even giants were in the land. Joshua's job was to lead Israel to conquer all of these and occupy what God had promised them. In Joshua 1, 7 through 9, God speaks to Joshua. He says, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to it, uh, from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And then God goes on to give Joshua clear commands as to how he is to go out into the camp and to prepare the people of Israel to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. God gives Joshua clear instructions on how to do that. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses' closing 
sermon. It's giving clear instruction to the people of God how they're to live for God once they're in the land. Well, Jesus does the same thing here. Jesus takes time to prepare His disciples for what's about to happen in Jerusalem. And so we see the second aspect of being a servant leader is we must prepare others to serve with clear instruction from God's Word. Here in verses 32 through 34, Jesus gives His third and final prediction of what's awaiting in Jerusalem, the the events of what we call Holy Week. Now, with every one of these three predictions, Jesus gets more specific. He gives more detail each time, almost as if he's kind of easing the disciples into all of this. And this last prediction is definitely the most detailed. It's almost like an outline of the events of Holy Week or or like a table of contents for the rest of Mark's Gospel. And for the first time, Jesus makes it clear that these events will happen in Jerusalem. Now, remember, the people are already afraid They're going up into Jerusalem, but Jesus doesn't shy away from the truth. He doesn't try to water it down or to sugarcoat it. Jesus is preparing them for what's about to happen. And Jesus wants to give them the context in which to reflect on this after the fact. And these predictions that Jesus makes of His betrayal, His arrest, His mockery, His beatings, His death, they're actually taken from Scripture. They're from the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is using God's Word to prepare His disciples. Isaiah describes the Messiah as a suffering servant who will be beaten and spit upon and flogged and mocked. Psalm 22 not only predicts in stunning detail the events of Jesus' crucifixion, but Psalm 22 describes Roman crucifixion perfectly a thousand years before it was ever invented. That's what Jesus is drawing on to prepare His disciples. And as Christian servant leaders, and I hope you're getting this by now, we're all Christian servant leaders, right? Not just pastors or deacons. We all are to be servant leaders. And we should use God's Word to prepare ourselves and to help prepare others to fully obey God's will. Psalm 119.105 tells us that God's Word is a lamp to our feet. He's a light to guide us on the path. Remember, God commanded Joshua to to keep his word, to meditate on it, to keep it on his lips, to, to obey everything written in it. The word of God is essential for us and for us to lead others to know, love, and follow Jesus. We must give clear direction from God's word. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says that all scripture is breathed by God, inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that we all may be completely equipped for every good work. How can we be equipped? How can we learn and grow and become more like Jesus? Through the Word of God. It is sufficient. And so Jesus then turns His attention to this act of correcting. He corrects the disciples who, you know, yet again, they're failing to think the things of God. Jesus often had to rebuke and correct them which is what leaders sometimes have to do. Always out of love, always with the the goal of helping, not hurting, maybe humbling but never humiliating, correcting but not criticizing. Sometimes we have to correct others' thinking with the Word of God. And that's the third element of leadership. We must be willing to correct worldly thinking. 
Specifically, Jesus corrected uh, the disciples on four truths that we also need to make sure that we understand correctly. We're going to uh, wrap up with these real quick. The first is our prayers must be God-centered, not self-centered. Now, in Matthew's account, he adds the detail that it was James and John's mother, Salome, who actually approached Jesus with this request. And before we look at Jesus' correction, I think we should at least give them credit for doing as Jesus taught them, right? Didn't Jesus teach them to ask in His name, believing that they'll receive, and they will? Didn't Jesus say that we're to ask, seek, and knock in persistent prayer? Didn't He tell them that whenever two or three of His followers agreed on anything on earth, it would be done by their Father in heaven? Aren't they just doing what Jesus taught them to do? I think so. Salome and the sons of thunder were actually putting into practice what Jesus had taught them about prayer. So they did listen, I guess, sometimes. Even the request is based on a promise from Jesus in Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me, meaning the twelve, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I think we can learn something positive from James and John and Salome here that we should come to Jesus in prayer and never be afraid to ask Jesus to meet our need. Never be afraid to ask Jesus to open a door of opportunity for us. Never be afraid to ask Jesus to give us wisdom in making decisions or or to help us to be better people, better spouses, better friends, better employees, better parents, better church members. We should be bold and specific in our prayers as they were. And we all could probably do with a little bit more faith when we pray, believing that God does hear an answer. James 4.2 says, You do not have because you do not ask God. Pretty simple. So why then did Jesus correct them? Why did Jesus... I mean, He literally said, You don't know what you're asking. And then He denied their request. He said, this is not mine to give. It is only for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. That's my Father's job. That's not what I'm here for. So why did Jesus reject their request? Well, James goes on. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. But in verse 3, he says, when you ask, you do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You see the problem was their request was a selfish request. They were more interested in their glory than God's glory and building their own kingdom than seeking after God's kingdom. They're still thinking worldly thoughts and they even misinterpreted that promise from Jesus. Jesus didn't promise two of them thrones of power. He promised 12 of them thrones of responsibility over the people of Israel. They didn't understand Jesus' promise. You know, Jesus says in John that we must worship God in spirit and in truth. I think that applies to prayer because prayer is an act of worship. Well, James and John felt on both fronts. They they weren't praying in truth, they misunderstood Jesus' promise, and they weren't praying in the right spirit. And because they weren't praying in spirit and in truth, their prayer didn't promote unity, but rather disunity. Jealousy, anger, that was the result of their request. Well, it's interesting that right before James, in James chapter 4, and that's not James, the brother of John, by the way, that's James, the half-brother of Jesus, that wrote the book of James. In the book of James chapter 4, we just read those two verses about prayer. In the verses immediately preceding that, at the end of verse 3, 
James is writing about unity and humility. He talks about humility that comes from wisdom. He warns us not to harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in our hearts. He says that that's not heavenly wisdom, but an earthly, unspiritual, demonic way of thinking. And and he goes on to say, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. It's peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. When we are praying prayers that are God-centered, that's the fruit of our prayers. Now, Jesus then gives some specific correction to the thinking behind their request. And that's that the path to glory requires suffering and sacrifice. We've talked about this before. This is a recurrent theme over the past few chapters. James and John still have a faulty view of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Yes, they demonstrate a faith that even though Jesus keeps talking about these horrible things happening, they still have a faith that He will rule and reign on His throne. That's good. But they keep wanting to skip over the part about the suffering and the death. They want to skip to the end, to the happy ending. We've talked about this before. They wanted rewards without the cost. They wanted a crown without a cross. And we still struggle with that same temptation today. How many of us we want a better life, right? We, we want to, to make changes in our lives to be better, but we don't want the pain and the cost that comes with it. And we will not do the things that we know will give us the results that we want. You know, better health, better financial security, to be better spouses or, or, or better uh, parents, but we want the easy way, the path of least resistance. We, we want microwave and fast food results, even though we know slow cookers and smokers are much better eats. Their wrong praying was the result of wrong thinking. And Jesus tells them that. He says, you don't know what you're asking. They thought being on the left and the right of the exalted Christ in Jerusalem would be places of great status and honor. But Jesus had in His mind the two who would be on His right and on His left as He was lifted up in Jerusalem. The thieves that would die on their own crosses along with Him. James and John thought the cup of Jesus would be this royal goblet of choice wine, but Jesus knew that it was a cup of suffering and it was full of God's wrath. Psalm 75, 8 describes this cup and he talks about the cup of the Lord. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Isaiah and Jeremiah both write about the cup of God's wrath, that He would make Jerusalem drink, He would make all the nations drink, this cup of judgment, and it would make them stumble. Jesus came to drink that cup for us. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, He prays for the cup to pass. Father, there's any way that this cup could pass. Make it so, but not my will, but Your will be done. Jesus knew what was in that cup. It was the cup of wrath from a holy God poured out on the sin and wickedness of mankind. And Jesus knew that by drinking that cup, by going to the cross of Calvary, He would consume and be consumed by the wrath that you and I deserved. And it would do more than make Him stumble. It would take His life. Jesus would die from drinking that cup. He drank it down to the dregs for you and me that we might be the sons and daughters of God. James and John thought the baptism 
that Jesus was going to be baptized with would be this holy anointing to heavenly offices of power and authority, but Jesus knew it was a baptism by fire and by water. As Isaiah describes, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, you will, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Jesus would pass through those waters of death for us. He would walk through the flames of judgment for us so that we could be forgiven and made right with a holy and just God. But the disciples continued to misunderstand that the path to true glory in God's kingdom is a path that goes through suffering and sacrifice and that not only did Jesus do these things for us, but as He calls us to follow Him, we have to face those things ourselves as well. As Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, if we want to be His disciples, we have to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow Him. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Suffering and sacrifice are the path to glory. And, and someday, James and John would drink the cup. They would be baptized with that baptism. We know that James was the first of the twelve to be martyred for the cause of Christ. We read that in Acts chapter 12. And we know that John was the last of the twelve to die. As he died an old man exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And that brings us to the third truth we need to make sure we are thinking biblically about. That our position must be one of countercultural humble service. It's not just a path of suffering and sacrifice. It's a path of service. And in verses 42 through 44, Jesus is contrasting the way of the kingdom of God with the Greco-Roman society. The Gentile world around them was built on this patron-client system where every relationship was transactional. Even friendship was a transactional friendship. It was all about status and about authority, about getting other people to honor you and to do what you want them to do. And Jesus says that's not to be true with you. In God's kingdom, we're to be like children. In God's kingdom, we're to serve like slaves. Now, Jesus uses two Greek words here. The first is diakonos. That's where we get the word deacon from. It's the generic word that means servant. That can refer to a household servant. It can refer to a public servant. It could refer to a waiter or a waitress serving you food and drinks at your table. It's the generic word for someone who serves. Jesus even uses that serving at a table analogy in Luke 22. He says, who is greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus was turning the conventions of leadership on its head. I mean, who doesn't love to be in charge, right? To tell others what to do, to have other people wait on us, to have people cater to our every whim. Who wouldn't want that? But Jesus says that's not greatness. The truly great ones are the ones who serve who meet needs, who consider others as better than themselves, who put other people's feelings and needs ahead of their own. But then Jesus took it another step. In one of those camel-through-the-eye-of-a-needle, mind-blowing ways, He said, if you want to be first, not only must you be a diakonos, you must be a doulos, a slave. That Greek word is what we think of as the traditional definition of a slave. It was the lowest-ranking person in the Greco-Roman world. You literally were the property of someone else. You had no rights, only responsibilities, only duties to fulfill. You had to obey 
your master's wishes. And Jesus makes it clear that we must correct our thinking about greatness, about honor, about what it means to lead. Jesus is basically defining leadership as the humble privilege of serving people to the glory of God. Let me say that again. Leadership is the humble privilege of serving people to the glory of God. And that's what we're all called to do. And it's not an easy road. Jesus never presented walking with Him as an easy road. It is a path of sacrifice, of service, where we give ourselves completely to Jesus. We even embrace the cup of suffering. We live for the sake of others and to seek the glory of God. And that brings us to the final thing we've got to correct our thinking about. And that's that Jesus is the pattern for our lives. Jesus our Lord is who we should pattern our lives after. Listen, Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that He has Himself has not done to an even infinitely greater degree than we could ever do. Jesus, being equal with God, did not cling to His rights and His privileges as God, but He emptied Himself. He made Himself nothing. The Creator entered into time and space, took on flesh and blood, lived among us as one of us, served the needy, and on the cross He took our grief, our sin, and our shame. He suffered the stripes so that we might be healed. That's what Jesus did for us. Look at verse 45. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus is telling us that His death serves two purposes. The first, it's a model of what it means to live a life of service. He's modeling servanthood for us. Jesus didn't come to serve, although Jesus, more than anybody who's ever lived, deserves to be served, right? If anybody deserves to be served, it's Jesus. If anybody has the right to demand us to serve Him, it's Jesus. But instead, He came to serve. And that brings us to the second point of His death. He came to lay down His life as a ransom for many. To take our place. To be the substitute for the penalty that we deserve. Now, what does that mean, a ransom? Well, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew mind, a ransom was what you would pay to redeem the firstborn from God. Remember in the, in the Passover, the firstborn of all of Egypt, from animals to Pharaoh himself, died. And so God told Israel, the firstborn of your flocks and your children belong to me. And so they would give an annual tithe to God to redeem, to buy back the firstborn. So that's what ransom meant in the Hebrew mind. But remember, Mark is writing to Roman Christians. So what does ransom mean in the Greco-Roman context? It was a payment to free a slave or to buy back a prisoner of war. This is the sense that's used in Hebrews 9.15. It says that Jesus has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant, under the law of Moses. Jesus died to set us free from sin. Now in Roman law... If you ransomed someone, maybe they were in debt and you paid off their debt, maybe they were slaves and you bought them from somebody, maybe they were a prisoner of war and you bought to set them free, they became a part of your household. They then belonged to you. And if Jesus ransomed us, don't we belong to Him? Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. 
Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We don't belong to ourselves. If we've given our lives to Jesus, we belong to Him. We are slaves of Christ. And we are to live like children. We're to serve others in His name. And if that's who we are, then anything less than humility is delusional. Apart from Him, we are nothing. Only God is good, remember? Only God is great. All glory belongs to Him. But God calls us. He calls us to places of leadership and service. Always in submission to His Word and His will. Led by His Spirit for the sake of His kingdom and the glory of His name. And that's true for every one of us. It's true for every Christian. Who has Jesus called you to lead? You may not think of yourself as a leader. But Jesus has called you to lead. Maybe He's calling you to lead someone to faith in Him. Maybe He's calling you to lead someone in discipleship. Maybe He's calling you to lead somebody by example or by service. Maybe He's calling you to lead your coworkers or your students or your employees or your family. God is calling all of us to be servant leaders of others. How does God want you to serve His kingdom? Again, if you belong to Jesus, how can you say no when God calls you to serve in His kingdom? Yes, it could be costly, it could be inconvenient, it could make you uncomfortable. But remember, we're called to a road of sacrificial service and maybe even suffering. And I guarantee you, I don't think there's anybody in this room that God's going to call to serve in such a way that would involve more sacrifice and more suffering than what our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are facing today. For them to even do what we're doing right now is an act of courage. For them to speak the name of Jesus could be a death sentence. And yet, when we fail to gather in worship, when we fail to share Jesus with others, when we fail to daily spend time in God's Word, shame on us. That's the road of discipleship. That's the road of servant leadership. And that road begins when we give our hearts and lives to Jesus. That's what it's all about. That's the point. Jesus gave His life as a ransom for you. He took your punishment upon Himself. He gave His life so that you might live. Do you know Jesus today? I don't mean, do you go to church? Have you been to Sunday school? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know Jesus? Have you given your life to Him? Have you asked Him to forgive you of your sins and to live inside of you and help you to follow His path? If you've not done that, I invite you to come right now. Don't leave this place until you know that you belong to Jesus. Maybe for you it's to come and unite with this church family or to surrender to a call to Christian service. Maybe God has been laying on your heart somebody that you need to go and talk to about Jesus. Somebody you need to invite to church. Maybe there's a position of service here in the church, in the nursery, in the choir, in the library. Maybe God is calling you to serve in some way and you've had your excuses and you've all been, that I might be busy, I've got this, I've got that. If you belong to Jesus, the only answer is yes. I will go wherever you lead. I will do whatever you call me to do. Would you stand and pray with me? And I hope that you will respond in faithful, courageous obedience to God today. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for Christ's compassionate sacrifice on the cross for our sins.
that we can be bought from the penalty that we deserve to die and spend eternity separated from you because of our sin. He has set us free from that if we but accept that free gift. And I pray if there's anybody here today that needs to do that, anybody online or on the radio, that they would do that right now. They would cry out to you in faith, repent of their sins, and ask you to forgive them and save them and be their master. Father, I pray that you would help us to be obedient to you, whatever you may be laying upon our hearts today. And as we leave this place, may we carry that challenge every day this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.